0: Well, I wanna start by saying thank you to Chris Starr for uh, preaching last Sunday and doing such a great job uh, walking us through uh, 1 John chapter three. And I trust your heart was uh, encouraged and challenged by that message. And uh, we had a good discussion uh, about it uh, at lunch on Tuesday. We always get together as a staff and and uh, enjoy a time of fellowship and plan for the rest of the week and things like that. And so uh, it lent itself to a great conversation. And um, as we were talking about this whole concept of uh, Christ giving us the power to break sin's grip, that was essentially the point of last week's sermon, that that through Christ, we have the power uh, to break the, the grip of sin in our lives. And um, we were talking about the delicate balance there between what Bible students, Bible scholars call the indicative and the imperative. Are, are you familiar with those terms? Um, the, the indicative is what God has done in Christ. It is what it is. It's who we are in Christ. Uh, the imperative is what we need to do, what we're called to do, what God has commanded us to do as a result of who we are in Christ. And so there's this... Um, dynamic, I guess, between what God has done and what we must do. And that is the Christian life. And and sometimes we get those things confused. And um, we always have to keep justification um, set apart from sanctification. Justification is something that God does completely on his own. It's what is called a monergistic work. One person does it, that's God. But then there's sanctification, which is, uh, we are included in that process. It's more synergistic. We partner with God via his Holy Spirit to work out and to put into practice what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. And so last week was all about the indicative. It was all about um, what Christ has done, God's work on our behalf. And um, we were talking about how it might be helpful just to follow that up with, okay, what does that look like practically in our lives? So, so we just sit back and go, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that the, the power of sin has been broken in my life and I can't wait for it to take effect. And I'm waiting. And I'm still waiting. And I thought, I thought sin no longer had power over me. Why do I keep sinning? Well, That's where we have to understand what um, it says in Philippians chapter two. It says, work out your salvation or sanctification is probably a better way to understand that passage. In fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it, right? It's both. It's a both and kind of situation when it comes to our sanctification. And both works, God's work for us in Christ on the cross and our work, to become more like Christ are both empowered and enabled by God's Spirit. So it's not like you just left us on our own and say, Hey, now you got to put all this into practice. Have fun with that. He gives us His Holy Spirit who makes it possible to do these things. And that's why whenever I have an opportunity to counsel someone that I don't know, my very first question is, Hey, tell me how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's the first thing I want to know, are they saved? Because if they're not saved, that means they don't have who? They don't have the Holy Spirit. And so whatever I'm going to tell them from God's word about, hey, this is what you need to do uh, to to, uh, change this area in your life or to fix this or to work on this, they're not going to be able to do it. No matter how badly they want their marriage to change or their you know, their life to change. They just can't do it unless they have the spirit of God in them. And so this morning, I just wanna follow up with um, a message that I hope will be um, helpful. At least we thought it might be as we talked about it. Um, I guess you'll be the determining factor at the end when this is over, whether this was helpful or or unnecessary. But um, take your Bibles and turn to Romans and uh, this is not in the official uh, Roman series that we're doing, right? We're going to do a little sneak preview uh, of, of uh, coming attractions here. This is a spoiler alert, just letting you know, okay, we're going to kind of get ahead of ourselves this morning, um, and because, uh, again, I don't know how I figured we'd have enough time between Romans 3 and Romans 8 that you'll forget this by, then, by the time we get there again, right? So... I'll be able to re-preach it and you'll be like, oh, this sounds like you wouldn't even remember it, right? But look at Romans chapter eight, verse 12 and 13. Romans chapter eight, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, so then brethren, writing to believers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If some of you still have uh, an old King James Version, you don't have to admit it. I'm not going to point you out. But uh, you you get it, this verse, because it actually says... Uh, But if by the Spirit you, what? What does it say? Mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. I want to talk about the subject of mortification. And I want to begin by just telling you a story that I think uh, powerfully illustrates this principle of mortification, which Paul Uh, explains here briefly uh, in verse 13. Um, You may remember this story, but back in 2003, uh, an extraordinary incident occurred in the life of a 27-year-old computer engineer from Aspen, Colorado named Aaron Ralston. Ralston was an avid outdoorsman. Uh, He set off on a day trip hiking and rock climbing in Utah's Canyonlands National Park. And while descending into a slot canyon, a suspended boulder he was climbing down, broke loose, crushing his right hand and pinning him against the canyon wall. At first, he threw his body against the 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 800-pound rock to free himself and then tried to chip away at it before realizing that the only way that he would be able to escape was to cut off his arm. So after three days of being stuck, he decided to amputate his right forearm But he made little progress sawing back and forth with his dull two-inch pocket knife. Two days later, having run out of food and water, he was dehydrated and delirious and knew he had to do something while he was still coherent or he was going to die. And it occurred to him that he could break his bones, which would make it easier for him to cut through all of that. And so he did, and he was able to amputate his right forearm. After freeing himself, Aaron still needed to get back to his car and cell phone, which were about eight miles away, and somehow he managed to pull himself out of the canyon and rappel down a 65-foot sheer face with one arm and hike six miles before he came across some other hikers. They gave him something to eat and drink and alerted the authorities, and he was quickly airlifted to the hospital. Again, this is a true story. In fact, it was made into a movie called 127 Hours. Some of you may have seen that movie. I never saw the movie, but I'll never forget reading this, reading about this in the Houston Chronicle in the days when I used to actually get the newspaper. Remember those days? I used to get the newspaper. Um, But this is what caught my attention. That was this headline. This was how they presented the story: loss of limb, price climber paid to live. It's a good headline. Caught my attention. And I was introduced to this man, Aaron Ralston. And I think he is a vivid example of how a person that has a passion to live will do anything it takes not to die, even if it means doing something as radical as cutting off your own arm. And Aaron's story reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5:30: if your right hand makes you stumble, what? cut it off and throw it from you for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. I think this is what you could call radical amputation. And it's what Jesus expected his followers to be willing to do. Whatever it takes to free ourselves from any sin that threatens to kill us and to drag us to hell, if you will. And, and what he was saying here is that our eternal destiny depends on how we deal with sin in our life. That's why we must deal with sin radically and not lackadaisically or casually. I mean, I think the Bible's approach to dealing with sin is so radical, it's, it's not often talked about. In fact, I personally have never heard a sermon on mortification, and I would submit to you that the majority of Christians today, if you ask them, hey, have you ever heard of mortification? They're, they would look at you funny like, what are you talking about? But that's the, the main way that the Bible says that we should deal with sin in our lives is, is this thing called mortification. And if you and I are ever going to overcome sin in our lives to, to um, if you will, um, put into practice or apply the power of To break sin's grip, we need to understand the doctrine of mortification. And so I want to answer just two basic questions about mortification this morning. Number one, what is it? And number two, how do we do it? And I think if, if you leave here this morning, being able to answer those two questions, what is mortification? How do we mortify sin? you will be well on your way to defeating sin in your life. So again, last week was, okay, the big principle is the power of sin's grip has been broken. Praise the Lord. In Christ, we're no longer slaves of sin, right? But practically, how do we implement that? What are some practical ways to to break sin's grip? And again, some of you may feel like Aaron Ralston, this morning, when it comes to your sin, that you're pinned by this 800-pound sin that's got you stuck. And you've been chipping away at that thing for weeks or months or maybe even years. And if you're honest, you haven't made much progress. You're still stuck. You still haven't gotten very far in overcoming that. And you know that, that if you don't do something about this, this is gonna kill you at least spiritually speaking. And so the question is, are you willing to do whatever it takes to stay alive spiritually? So let's talk about this. What is mortification? Look at Colossians 3, 5. Just one other reference. This is the only other time the word mortify is used uh, or this concept of mortification is specifically uh, laid out for us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 Paul, writing to the church in Colossians, says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Again, the King James Version says, mortify your members which are upon the earth. The ESV, if you have the English Standard Version, says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then, what are we talking about? We're talking about sin. Whether it's immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, all of which comes down to idolatry in our hearts. And so, going back to Romans 8, Romans 8, so those are the two references to mortification in the New Testament, but let's zero in now on Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, and I think it's important that we understand the context uh, in which this passage is, is found. And uh, right now in our study, we are in the uh, first section of Romans. Uh, We're looking at condemnation, right? We're looking at how we're all under the condemnation of God. We all lack the righteousness that we need to be right with God. We are all under sin. We're we're condemned. And we're going to be moving here shortly into the next section um, in in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to chapter 5, verse 21, uh, about justification and what God has done in Christ to make us right with him, how he's granted us his righteousness through Christ. And then when you get to chapter 6, you come into a new subject, and that is sanctification. And so you you go from condemnation to justification, and chapters 6, 7, and 8 in Romans are all about sanctification. If you have your little... Romans Road, or a or roadmap to Romans in your Bible, you can just look and see that's where we're going here. And so Paul was addressing here the topic of sanctification, which is the process that every believer goes through of being set apart from sin unto God. And we know it's progressive. Chris mentioned that last week. It doesn't happen instantly, right? Our salvation or our justification is, is, is instantaneous, right? It's a, it's a, it's a crisis moment. Um, and and and, and uh, sanctification is a lifelong process. It's called progressive, and it's really uh, the way I like to understand it. It's moving from sinfulness to sin Not that you ever become sinless, but you sin less and what less? That's sanctification as you become more and more conformed or transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, you sin less and less and less. Now, there's an irony to that. It's a catch-22 about that. Some of you may have walked away from last week saying, well, wait a minute. If I'm actually growing in Christ and getting closer to Christ, why do I feel more sinful than ever? Do you ever feel that way? Chris is saying, hey, listen, if, if you're a Christian, then you should see a decreasing frequency of sin in your life, which I totally agree with, but there's a catch-22 there. You start to feel like you're more sinful than you were when you first got saved. Why? Because you're getting closer and closer to Christ, and the spotlight is brighter and brighter, and so you are seeing more of your sin than you ever have. In other words, when you first became, when you were a baby Christian, you didn't necessarily know all that was going on in your heart and the idolatry that was there. And, and, and the more you grow in Christ, wow, what happens is God exposes that stuff. You go, wow, my, my heart is so wicked. And you realize more and more how sinful you really are. And so again, there's this, this uh, irony, there's this paradox here uh, of while yes, there should be a decreasing frequency of sin in your life, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And so as we look at Paul's flow of thought here, In Romans chapter six, seven, and eight, it goes like this. Chapter six is essentially uh, liberation from sin realized. And in chapter six, verse six, he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. And so Paul's making the point, he's reminding us here now, in light of what Christ has done on the cross for us in our justification, that sin no longer has power over us and no longer controls us because Christ's death defeated the power of sin. That's chapter six. Chapter seven, it seems like Paul regresses a bit because he begins to express his frustration with sin. And Paul was honest about his ongoing struggle with sin. And even though the power of sin had been defeated, its presence was still alive and well in his life. It still attracted him. It still sought to influence and, and control him. And he says there in, in chapter seven how he, he he does the things that he doesn't wanna do. And he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. And he was almost, uh, it sounds like he's a spiritual schizophrenic, right? He's going back and forth and what's your problem, Paul? And he, he, he concludes in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? In other words, My old nature was crucified, my old sin nature was crucified in Christ, but I still live in this body of flesh that's gotten really good at sinning. I've taught it, I've practiced, I've trained it to sin. And so what do I do? Well, chapter eight brings the solution and that is mortification. Mortification, that that sinful habits... In our lives are defeated by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so the hope of overcoming sin's control is living under the Spirit's control. And so we get to chapter 8, verse 12. He says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In other words, before we were saved, we were under obligation to live according to the flesh. We had no choice but to sin. In fact, look at verses seven and eight. He says here, because the mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you had no choice. We had no choice. All we could do is sin. But now that we're saved, we don't have to sin anymore. We are able not to sin, is Paul's point. We have a choice now whether to sin or not. We used to be slaves to sin, but now sin is no longer our master. But we are now under obligation, not to our flesh, but to our new master, who? Jesus Christ. And he wants us to live a holy and righteous life. And so he says here, so then brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For all, for if if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you're putting to death or mortifying the deeds of the body, you will live. And so instead of living according to the flesh, we should be putting to death the deeds of the flesh, killing the deeds of the flesh, destroying the deeds of the flesh. And again, this is where we get this whole concept of mortification or mortify. Uh, We all know what a mortuary is, right? It's where they keep all the dead bodies. We know what a mortician is, right? A creepy guy who deals with all the dead bodies, right? Um, Hopefully that's not offending anybody who's a mortician here or has a family member who's a mortician, but they handle dead bodies, right? So a simple definition of mortification, here it is, ready? Really simple, you can write this down. Killing sin in your life. That's, That's what mortification is. Killing sin in your life. And, and so it's, it's crucial that we understand that mortification is a, ready, ready for this? Don't miss this, a life and death issue. A life and death issue. Notice he says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death that he's the body, you will live. Life and death issue, Paul's focusing on here. And so just like Jesus, when he said, hey, if your eye causes you sin, gouge it out, your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because you it's it's better to go into heaven with one eye or one arm than to go to hell with both, right? So Paul's clearly implying here that, that our eternal destiny depends on whether or not we mortify sin in our life. Now, that statement needs some clarification, doesn't it? Because <laughs> you're like, well, what are you saying? If I don't work hard enough that I'm I'm gonna go to hell? No, I don't think that's what we're talking about or what Paul's talking about here. He's simply saying we will die if we don't put sin to death in our life. We must be willing to do whatever it takes to remove from our lives that which will cause our death. One Scottish preacher, an old Puritan, David Clark, said this, if you don't kill sin, it will kill you. Kill or be killed. Is the idea here? So, what is Paul saying here? Let's look more specifically. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Again, Paul wasn't saying that a Christian who sins, you're living in the flesh, you could lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you are living according to the flesh, in other words, you're living in a continual pattern of sinfulness, you have sinful habits in your thoughts, your words, or your actions that you're not doing anything about or not making any progress in, you will die in your sin. In other words, you are not a Christian. That was the point that Chris was making last week or that John made in 1 John, right? This is how you know if you're a child of the God or a child of the devil, these patterns or these practices, do you, is, do you practice sin as a, as a habit? I think one of the greatest assurances that we are truly saved is not that we stop sinning altogether because that's never gonna happen on this planet, but that we see, again, a decreasing frequency of sin in our lives. We're not perfect and we will never be perfect this side of heaven, but what we should be doing is resolving to kill sin, rather than allowing it to remain a pattern in our life. And again, the point of John, First John, chapter three, verses seven to ten, is that if it's impossible for a believer, a true believer, to continue in an ongoing habitual lifestyle of sinfulness. On the other hand if you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh like your life is characterized by a sincere desire and an earnest effort to overcome sinful habit patterns then you will live that's what he says here that if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body you will live again it's not that mortifying sin saves you but mortifying sin proves what that you're saved that you have experienced the power of sin's grip being broken in your life through your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Your desire, your effort to overcome sin in your life is evidence that you are a true Christian. So I ask you do you have a passion to be holy and to not sin? Can you honestly say that you hate sin and don't want to do it? Or do you kind of like it and don't really care whether you do it or not? You're kind of enjoying it and you're gonna kind of remain in it and maybe confess here a little bit but not really take it seriously. Are you exerting intense effort to overcome sin in your life? I mean, what are you doing about it? You say, I mean, I hate this sin, but okay, so what are you doing about it? See, if you have no desire and are putting forth no effort, or maybe this, you see no progress in mortifying sin in your life, it may mean that you're not a Christian. Why? Because a person that's not a Christian does not have the one thing that makes all this possible, and that's the Holy Spirit. And therefore, that's why they have no desire or ability or are making no progress in mortifying their sin. Because you can't do this in your own strength. You must have the Holy Spirit. And so this verse here, verse 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This this should challenge all of us to do a very serious, thorough, honest self-examination to make sure that we are truly in the faith. Paul exhorted us in 2 Corinthians thirteen five, examine yourself to make sure you're truly saved. Peter said the same thing, 2 Peter 1:10, 10, uh, to, to make your calling and election sure. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this passage, particularly Romans 8, 12, and 13. He said, here we're told exactly how in practice the Christian becomes sanctified. So last week was the principle that because we've been justified, made right with God in Christ, right, that the power of sin's grip has been broken. That's, that's the principle. Well, how, how in practice do, does that become a reality in our lives? Well, it's through the sanctification process. He says this, he goes on, or to state it differently, here we are told in detail and in practice how the Christian is to wage battle against sin. J.I. Packer has a great definition of mortification. He says, to mortify means to kill. And the end aimed at in this duty is destruction as it is in all killing, The utter ruin, destruction, and gradual annihilation of all the remainders of this cursed life of sin. Indwelling sin has been dethroned and dealt its death blow through the believer's union with Christ in his death. Now, with the Spirit's aid, the Christian must spend his lifetime draining its lifeblood. Very graphic imagery there. And then John MacArthur has written a great book years ago. It was called The Vanishing Conscience. Where he has a section on, on uh, mortification. It's just outstanding. And if you can, yeah, I would encourage you to get that book and, and read it. It's, it's a really wonderful book, very convicting book about sin. Um, but he says this the flesh is very subtle and deceptive. A particular sin may leave us alone for a while to make us think we're rid of it, but it can come back with a hellish fury if we are not on our guard. Have you all experienced that? Just when you thought you were out of the woods on some particular attitude or response that you know is a sinful uh, response or attitude or practice and then all of a sudden, boom, it comes, rears its ugly head. It's like kind of like whack-a-mole. You ever played that, you know, at Toys R Us? At Toys R Us, somebody's talking about, uh, what's it called, Chuck E. Cheese. Get my kids things all jumbled up there. I haven't been there in a long time. But Chuck E. Cheese, right? You hit the whack-a-mole, you hit the head and it pops up somewhere else. As, that's my experience when it comes to dealing with sin. Just when I think I whack this sin over here, boom, this one pops up and I whack that one, and oh, boom, it's right in front of me, and, and it just seems to come out of different areas. So MacArthur goes on, he says, "Sin perpetually stalks us. We must be continually mortifying it. This is a duty we cannot rest from until we rest in glory. So we're talking about what is mortification. So let me just sum up all of this. Mortification does not mean completely eliminating sin from our lives. Only Jesus can do that when we, right, either comes or takes us home. But what is it? It's constantly fighting against sin and ultimately weakening it in our lives. We must see sin as our sworn enemy that will do whatever it takes to kill us and we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to kill it before it kills us. That's the concept of mortification. Now, how do we actually go about mortifying our sin or putting to death the deeds of the body or killing sin before it kills us? How do we do it? Well, there is um, many, many principles throughout the scriptures that we could talk about this morning, but uh, in the spirit of the 12-step program that has been become so popular in our culture that, hey, you've got a problem, well, we've got a 12-step program. Just go through these 12 steps and your problem will be solved. You'll stop drinking, you'll start smoke, stop smoking, you'll stop looking at pornography, you'll stop whatever the the issue is in your life. We have a 12-step program. Well, let me just give you 12 ways to mortify sin in your life. Again, this is not an all-inclusive list. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about this morning, but I think it covers some of the most basic biblical principles for mortifying sin. And I hope this will be very helpful. I hope this will be very practical um, in, in, again, putting into practice or applying the principle that sin's grip over you has been broken. And you're like, that's wonderful. I can rejoice in that and praise the Lord for that. But how do I implement that now in my life? What does it look like practically in the sanctification process? Well, let's just start with this. Number one, identify specific sins you need to kill. Identify specific sins you need to kill. Now, I've written out, all the verses that I'm gonna to turn to there so you don't necessarily have to um, try to write them all down or even get to them, but just listen to these verses. 1 Kings chapter eight, verse 37. This is Solomon praying a prayer of dedication of the temple. And so he's asking God to bless um. The temple and to bless the worship there and the people of Israel. And he says, If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, which, by the way, all those were an indication that there was what? Sin in the camp, right? That somebody was sinning, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart or knowing the plague, it says, I think in, in some other versions, knowing the plague of his own heart and spreading his hands towards his house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So what are we talking about here? That we need to know our own hearts, and we need to ask the Lord to reveal to us the sin in our hearts, because ultimately He's the only one who knows it, right? And uh, I think uh, we have in Psalm one thirty nine a great example of that. David in, in uh, Psalm one thirty nine verse twenty three: "Search me, O God, and know my what my heart." Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or offensive or grievous or wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And so David's saying, hey, search my heart and, and show me. Now, how many see if there's any sinful ways in me? The prophet Haggai There at the very end of of the Old Testament, Haggai twice calls out to the people of Israel. He says, consider your ways in verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, and again in verse 7. Consider your ways. And so what what are you talking about here? We need to consider our ways. We need to consider our hearts and 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 zero in, identify on the specific sinful habit patterns in your life. The things that you find yourself doing over and over again. The things that are easier to do than not to do. Maybe that's a way to, to know if this is a habit or not. It's just it's just easier to do it than to not do it. Like it's hard not to do it, but it's, I find it very easy to do that. Well, that's probably a, a a specific sin that you need to work on. It's it's too natural. It's too automatic that you respond that way, that you think that way, that you look that way, that whatever. And so we're talk, what are we talking about? Zero in, identify. Is it anger? Is it pride? Is it anxiety? Is it fear? Is it materialism? Is it sexual immorality? Is it jealousy? Is it gluttony? We're talking about any life-dominating sin here. The world calls those addictions, right? Like drugs and alcohol and maybe it's nicotine. Maybe it's caffeine. Maybe you can't like, seriously, you might be addicted, right? Dominated by caffeine. Like, I've got to have this. And if I don't have this or, or you know, that other white substance. And I'm not talking about cocaine. I'm talking about sugar. Seriously, just when you think about, am I addicted to this? Like, like I got to have, why do I always have to be eating these things? Why can't I just say no? Why is that so hard to say no? But it's so easy just to say yes. That's probably because it's a sinful habit pattern in your life. And so... Kyle mentioned to us uh, a few months ago that one of his counseling buddies back in California came up with this thing called a PSP, a personal sanctification project. I love it. That's really good, a PSP, a personal sanctification project. That's what we're talking about. That's what this whole mortification thing is. It's It's a personal sanctification project. For example, one of the ways I've tried to do this is to come up with a five most wanted list. We've talked about this before. And I've sought to identify what are the five sins that I struggle with the most in my life. I'm gonna write them down. What are the five sins that I struggle with? I just I they, man, why do I always do that? Why do I struggle with that? These are the five things. If God can change anything in my life, and I say, Lord, there's just five things. I got five wishes, if you will. It's not the three wishes. If you only come up with three. That's good enough for me, okay? But you got three wishes, you got five wishes. Lord, if you could change anything in my life, it would be these five areas. Write them down. Be specific. Identify them. Call them out. And I would encourage you maybe even not just to put the, the sin down there, but also put, what's the opposite? What's the, you're supposed to put off this. Well, what are you supposed to put on in its place? So it's not just focus on. I got to stop doing that. Stop it, quit it. And say, "No, I need to be pursuing this." If if my issue is pride, why am I so prideful all the time? Well, then I need to be pursuing humility, right? So so get those things lined up on a piece of paper or somewhere that you can turn into a prayer list. We're going to get to that in a second. So number one, identify specific sins you need to kill. Don't just kind of like, yeah, I'm a sinner and oh yeah, I always mess up. But, and, and, and we don't get intentional. We don't get deliberate enough with our sin. Call it out by name. I'm going after you. You, are, you made it on my personal sanctific- into my personal sanctification project. You're my new project pride. You're my new project fear. You're my new project gluttony. You're my new project anxiety I'm gonna overcome you by the grace of God. I'm coming for you. So identify specific sins you need to kill. Secondly, live under the Holy Spirit's control. Live under the Holy Spirit's control. Again, these are, um, you're not gonna hear anything you haven't already heard before, I guarantee you, but it's just reminding us, hopefully, uh, ho- hopefully stirring us up by way of reminder of these basic principles Galatians chapter five, verse 16, I say to you, Paul says, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Sounds simple enough, right? Hey, just just walk by the spirit and you won't sin. You can't be walking in the spirit and sin at the same time. And so whenever you sin, you know you're not walking in the spirit, you're walking in the flesh, for the flesh sets a desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And he goes on to describe the deeds of the flesh. It's obvious, he says, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, there it is again, that word practice showed up four times in 1 John 3 last week, right? Um, Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's how you know if you're in the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what's the last one? Self-control, self-control. Control, and when it really comes down to it, what is the one fruit of the Spirit you need more than any when you're being tempted to sin? The ability to control yourself. And see, when we live under the Spirit's control, he enables us to control ourselves, to control our desires, our impulses. You say, so what does it mean to live under the Spirit's control, to, to walk by the Spirit? It means you live your life directed by submitted to yielded to the Holy Spirit Ephesians 5:18 do not be drunk with wine but be what filled with the Holy Spirit what's the what's the connection between being drunk and being filled with the spirit you're you're in, in both cases you're under the influence of something you're under the control of something and so that's the idea here is living under the Holy Spirit's control and so Again, it's, it's something that, that you could add to your prayer time on a daily basis is Lord, I, I yield my life to you, my eyes, my ears, my, my mouth, my hands, my feet, especially those members of your body that you find sinning most often say, Lord, I, I yield my hand specifically to you. I yield my mouth specifically to you. I yield my eyes specifically to you. I, I want them to be under your spirit's control today because if, if, if they're not, they're gonna be under my control and I haven't been doing so well in controlling those things. So live under the Spirit's control. Number three, fight sin with God's word. Fight sin with God's word. I imagine that many of you have Psalm 119, verse nine and 11 memorized. Let me just read them, Psalm 119, verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? And by the way, I think you could fill in the blank. How can, you, how can anyone keep his way pure, right? It doesn't matter if you're young, old, man, woman, Student, child, what? By keeping it according to your word. And then he goes on in verse 11. Your word I have, what? Treasured or hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. What does that mean to treasure or to hide God's word in your heart? It means you don't just read the word, but you, what? Memorize the word. You put it to memory and then you meditate on it, you think about it, and hopefully it's there when the temptation comes, boom, you can quote that verse to yourself and remember what God has said about this so that you can counteract the lies that the devil is telling you with the truth of God's word. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness for those 40 days? He's the perfect example for us Each time he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he quoted an appropriate, excuse me, applicable passage of scripture that he was meditating on. And if you look at his responses to the devil's temptations, it's clear he was meditating on Deuteronomy chapter eight, uh, which was talking about how the, the nation of Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, and how God had put them out there to show them what was in their heart, and in a sense, that was what was going on in those 40 days when Jesus was in the wilderness. It wasn't to, to show Jesus what was in his heart. He knew what was in his heart, right? But to show everyone else that this was God in human flesh. And he wasn't gonna sin. But he, he models for us, how do you do that? You, you just pack your mind and your heart full of scripture and you learn how to use it strategically to defend against temptation to attack sin like a, like a skillful swordsman. Isn't that what it says in Ephesians chapter 6 that, that the last piece of armor, if you will, uh, of the armor of God is what? The sword of the, the Spirit. And so we need to study and memorize and meditate on, on verses that deal specifically with the sins that you struggle with. Those are, so, sins you identify, right? As, as ones that, that, that you need to kill. Well, do a Bible study on. It. And you're like, well, where do I begin? Well,. I guarantee your Bible has a thing in the back called a concordance, which you probably never used or, you know, but it's a helpful way to start. Hey, I struggle with pride, right? I struggle with lust or I struggle with anxiety. Well, I'm gonna go back there and I'm gonna look up some verses. I'm gonna look for pride, I'm gonna look for anxiety and I'm gonna look up all these verses that are listed under there and I'm gonna study those and I'm gonna pick out one or two that I'm gonna memorize, the ones that really jump out at me, really convict me, really challenge me, really encourage me. I'm gonna zero in on I'm gonna memorize I'm gonna write down on a piece of you know whatever, index card or something or put it on my phone somewhere I can remember to post a sticky note on my mirror, my dashboard. I'm gonna put it out there so it's easy, easily accessible. And so why? You're, you're not just, you know, well, you know, they said I'm supposed to read my Bible every day. Well, there's a reason. There's a, that's a means to an end. It's you're, you're, you need this book to fight sin. And so fight sin, attack sin with God's word. Number four, depend on the Lord through prayer. Depend on the Lord through prayer. And of course, you remember the last thing that he, that Paul said in that armor of God passage, after he tells you to suit up and he explains all the pieces of armor that we have, he says, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, what? Pray at all times in the spirit. See, you can't get away from the spirit in this process. He's got to be in every step of the way. So you pray in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Don't just pray for yourself, but pray for others as they battle sin. How did Jesus teach the disciples to pray? Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, right? And protect us from the evil one, Satan. Um, In Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, when the disciples were there in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and he asked them to pray with, the, with him and they ended up falling asleep. Listen to what he said to them in uh, chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And uh, speaking of Christ's temptation, Hebrews 4 Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In our times of temptation and trial. That's just talking about prayer. Going before the throne of God and knowing that you have a sympathetic high priest, someone who can intercede on your behalf, who's been there, done that, he gets it, And he's there to help us. So we need to go confidently. We need to go frequently. And we need to pray things like, God, thank you for freeing me from sin's power. That in Christ, I am no longer a slave to sin. Thank him. Praise him for that. Confess your sin. Lord, I confess. I I blew it again. I messed up. I agree with what I did was wrong, and and I ask you to please forgive me, and would you help me to never do it again? That, That should be something that you say after every time you confess and say, Lord, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Would you please forgive me? And Lord, would you help me never to do that again? Hopefully, that's your heart, even if you do it again, right? That your heart at that moment was, I don't ever want to do that again. Help me never do that again. Cause me to to hate sin, God, as much as you hate. I I wanna hate my sin as much as you hate my sin. Those are, just that's how you depend on the Lord through prayer. And and that leads to number five, hate sin and fear sin. Hate sin and fear sin. I love the example of Joseph in Genesis 39, 9, when Potiphar's wife um, was trying to seduce him And, and, and he gave her the Heisman big time. And, 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 he, and he said, how could I do this great, what, evil before God? It wasn't like, well, I don't know, I don't want to get caught, and I don't know, this is such a good idea. No, this is evil. I don't want any part of this. He hated sin. You think about being fearful of sinning, right? Acts 5.11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, you lie, you die, Right? I mean, that, that, was a, that was what God wanted to, to, to establish at the very beginning of his church. Hey, I take sin seriously and, and, and you should be fearful uh, of what happens when people sin. When, in fact, Paul was telling Timothy uh, about how to deal with elders who, who, uh, who are uh, accused of some kind of uh, uh, sin. He says, those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. But you know what that's like when, when on a rare occasion we have to make some kind of public announcement during a communion service about and, and, and having, having somebody who's under church discipline. I mean, there's just like a, a holy fear, that a holy hush that comes over the, the congregation as it should. Like, wow, sin is scary. Sin is deceptive. Sin is destructive. And, 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 and I, could, I could be that guy, but for the grace of God. And so we need to see, see sin for what it really is Rebellion against God, it grieves God's heart, it despises his authority. And we should hate sin not just because of the consequences that it brings in people's lives, but simply because of what it is. One of the old Puritans, Thomas Brooks, was referring to a church father named Seneca, and he said this, if there was no God to punish him, no devil to torment him, no hell to burn him, no man to see him, yet he would not sin for the ugliness and filthiness of sin. That's what we need to pray for, that we would hate sin that much. That even if there was no consequences, nobody would ever find out. We'd never get caught, right? No, we, we just hate it so much, it's ugly, it's filthy. Number six, don't feed the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. The flesh, we already talked about this, if, 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 your, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, your hand caused you to sin, cut it off, Romans thirteen fourteen. this is an important verse that hopefully you have memorized, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Listen, our sinful flesh is always looking for opportunities to satisfy itself, so, so, so we can't provide it any opportunities to feed itself. You know, it's like the, the little pet sin that we kind of keep in our closet, and we kind of open the door, and we pick it up, and it's our cute little sin, and we, you know, we play with it for a little while, and then we put it back in the closet, and well, every time you do that, guess what? It, you don't recognize it because it's happening slowly, but surely that thing's getting bigger and getting bigger and getting bigger because you keep feeding it, right? And so one day you open up the closet to play with your pet sin, and that thing pounces out and destroys you because it's, it devours you. It's become a roaring lion. So the point is we need to remove anything in our lives that has the potential to tempt us to sin. We need to make it hard for ourselves to sin. Have you ever thought about sin-proofing your house? Now obviously there's only so much you can do to that, right? Because you got, at least we got five sinners running around in our house, right? So the only way to do that is kick everybody out, be an empty house, right? But, but there's some things you can do, right? There's some things you can throw away. There's things you can pour out. There's things you can smash. There's things you can burn. There's things you can cancel. There's things you can delete. There, there's, there's relationships that you might need to end. You might have to drive a different way to work. You might even have to get a different job. You might have to move. I mean, there's just taking radical steps, right, to not make a provision for your flesh, Number seven, unearth and uproot the the real issue. Unearth and uproot the real issue. Ezekiel 14.3 talks about idols of the heart. And we've talked about this before, so I don't need to necessarily go into that whole concept, but when God confronted the nation of Israel, you would have thought he would talk about the idols up on the hills, which they had plenty of those. He says, no, I'm more concerned about the idols of your heart because the reason why you got idols on the hills is because you got idols in your heart. And, and Jesus said that, that ultimately, all sin comes from where? The heart. James 4.1 talks about why do you fight? Um, what, 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 why do you quarrel? Why is there so, com- so much conflict? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members you lust and do not have, so you commit murder? You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask. So there's these warring desires in our heart. 1 John chapter 2 specifies three main idols of the heart. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. You can pretty much put all all the sins that you struggle with under one of those three categories. And you gotta zero in and say, okay, what what am I really struggling with here? Is, Is this the lust of... The eyes, is this a lust of the flesh? Is this a lust uh, of, of, or is this the pride of life? Is this a, a controlling desire to feel good, to look good, to be thought well of, all right? These are these controlling desires. And so you need to ask yourself and discern, okay, what am I really worshiping here? What, is, what am I really desiring? In other words, don't just look at the, the, the fruit on the tree, Okay, yeah, I see a bunch of rotten apples, but I want to know why I got a bunch of rotten apples. I got to go down to the root and find out what's going on underneath the surface. I don't want to just deal with the symptoms. Um, I want to deal with the causes. It's like um, weeding your garden. You're like, hey, I want to make quick work of this, and I only got a few minutes, so I'm going to just kind of be superficial. You go through and you rip off all the weeds at the surface. Well, what's going to happen next week? Next weekend, where are you going to be? Again, out in the garden, because you didn't dig out the root issue. And I think one of the reasons we never change is we only deal with the surface problem. We need to address the root issue. So you got angry with your kids. Okay, great, but what did you want? What did you expect? What did you think you deserved at that moment? Were you looking for respect? Was it the idol of respect? Was it the idol of laziness, comfort? I wanna be able to sit here and not be bothered by you guys. You know, Go beyond the I blew up in my kids to what was really driving that. So unearth and and uproot the real issue. Number eight, break old habits and build new habits. Break old habits and build new habits. And this is really, I think, sanctification 101. It really just boils down to breaking old sinful habits and making new godly habits in their place. Ephesians chapter four, Colossians three, talks about this principle of putting off, right? Old sinful habits and putting on new habits in their place. Again, because that's, who we are in Christ. We've put off the flesh in Christ. We were, our old man was crucified, right? And now we put on uh, our newness of life in Christ. So what does that look like practically? Well, it's, it's, it really comes down to employing the power of a habit. Habits are good things, by the way. They're a gift from God. We should use it for our advantage. Aren't you glad when you woke up this morning, you didn't have to figure out how to brush your teeth again? Like how maddening would that be every morning? You had to figure it out every morning because, well, no, you're in a habit or where your socks were, where your dresses were, wherever, we have these habits that we've developed. Those are good things. And the reason why we're so good at certain things is because we've done it so many times, it becomes a habit. And so in the same way, we've trained ourselves to sin. In the same way, we must train ourselves not to sin. And again, it takes Practice, 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 practice. Developing new habits. You've responded selfishly for years. How long is it going to? How long do you think it's going to teach you to, to, to respond selflessly? Overnight? No, it's going to be a process. But you got to you got to be committed to it and say, I'm 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 done being that selfish guy. I want to be a selfless guy. Change your thinking. Number nine. Romans 12.2, Paul says that we should not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the what? The renewing of our minds. 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, let your mind dwell on these things. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above. The point is the, the Christian life is won or lost, where? Right here, in the mind. And so... If we wanna live right, we need to think right. And so our thinking needs to change in order for our life to change. And so we need to start taking thoughts captive that rise up in rebellion against the word of God. And you know, Philippians four is a great example. If you start to worry and you have anxious thoughts, what does it say to do? Be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving, let your what? requests be made known to God. In other words, you turn those anxious thoughts into prayers. And you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you say, no, I'm not gonna worry about this. I'm gonna pray about this. And, and that's just an example of how you need to, it's in your mind. The battle's in your mind. Number 10, stay broken and humble. Stay broken and humble. Psalm 51.7, love David's confession of his adultery and murder. He said, a broken and contrite heart, what, you will not despise. David knew what, what God was looking for. I wasn't looking for him to jump through a bunch of hoops and sacrifice this bull and kill this pigeon and drain the blood and all this kind of... No, he said, I know what you want. You want me to be broken and contrite before you about my sin. Galatians 6.1, if you see your brother overtaken in a fault, you who are a spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to your what? Looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. One of my kids showed me yesterday a, a, a video of some, somebody that they grew up with and how they had just gone off the rails big time and w- w- was, became a, a drag queen in, in New York. And we were all shocked, like, wow, we knew that guy. And, and, uh, and, and I texted back to, 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 to my kid. I said, hey, you know what? But for the grace of God, there go any of us. It's like, no, how could he? I I can't believe how, you know, that's sometimes how we think about, so how how could you do that? I would never do that. Listen, if that's you, if any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he, what? Fall, so be humble, be broken before the Lord. James 4, 6, right in the the heart of this discussion about uh, overcoming spiritual adultery, um, uh, he says this, um, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble, So you just need to be humble. And, and as one Puritan likened himself to a powder cake, He said, I, I, I'm a powder cake, and I can't get near any sparks because I'll blow. And, and so the point is he was humble enough to, to know. He knew himself. He knew what he could and couldn't handle. And so he knew he had to avoid certain people in certain places, right? Because if he got too close, that would ignite sin in his life. So stay broken and humble. Number 11, make yourself accountable. Make yourself accountable. I love Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. In other words, God never designed us to have to struggle with sin all by ourselves. That's why he said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, but encourage one another, right? Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good news. Why? Because, because, uh, listen, all of us need regular encouragement so that our hearts don't become hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. So we need to make ourselves accountable we need to find somebody who shares our commitment to holiness and, and, and ask them to help us mortify our sin. And maybe, maybe there's someone that you need to show that your five most wanted list, your, your, your PSP, uh, personal sanctification project too, and say, Hey, this is what I'm working on. And I just want you to know that so you can be asking me and praying for me. And, and uh, and I need your, uh, I need you to bear this burden with me and I need your encouragement and I need your admonition and I need your prayer and, Listen, for some of you, this could be the very first step in overcoming some stubborn sin that you've been trying to overcome for years. You've confessed it to God a thousand times, but you've never confessed it to anyone else. And so I always encourage people, listen, yeah, confess confess it to God, but also confide in another like-minded believer. And it's just something when it's no longer a secret, it's like it no longer has power over you. Last one, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't end on this note, and that is this, stay focused on Christ and the cross. Stay focused on Christ and the cross. Obviously, we can do nothing apart from Christ. John 15, five, we must abide in Christ in this whole process. First Peter chapter four talks about since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God, for the time already passes sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, you've had plenty of time to do that. Those days are over. You're a new man, you're a new woman in Christ. Live like it. And it's all because of the crucifixion. It's all because of the cross that Christ died, 2 Corinthians 5:14, that those who live should no longer live for what? Themselves, but for him who died for and rose again. And then Hebrews, maybe just turn to this one last passage, Hebrews 12. And this is such a great balancing passage. I love it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we sung about that earlier. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, period. Close your Bible, get out there, work harder, roll up your sleeves, do better. Is that how it stops? No, the writer says, hey, get after it. <laughs> We're, you're in a race, man, you know, uh, lay aside the the encumbrance of the sin that easily entangled, run with endurance the race. I mean, this is exhausting, enduring life as a Christian. But then notice what he says. How How do you do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, literally looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who not only saves us, but sanctifies us who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. In other words, whatever you're having to go through, whatever battle you're having to fight, whatever struggle you're facing, it doesn't even come close to what Jesus had to go through. And guess what? Your sin is why Jesus died. God had to kill his son because of your sin and my sin. Think about that. And that's a sobering thought. It's not just about buffeting my body and, and you know, laying aside. Sin. No, it's looking to Jesus. And, and, and if anywhere you want to begin, it's pondering how our sin killed Jesus. I'm gonna to continue to do these things that, 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 that required the death of my Lord and Savior, Jesus? The cross has sin-killing power. That's a quote from John Owen. The cross has sin-killing power. When I surveyed the wondrous cross, you know that him, right, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost, and I pour contempt on all my what? Pride. No more humble place to be than at the foot of the cross. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. So it's the cross, right? It's also looking and longing for Christ's return. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that we are to... Um, As aliens and strangers abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. In other words, this is not our home. Jesus is coming back to get us and those of us who have this hope purify themselves, right? Because when we see him, we'll be like him. And so this passage in Hebrews, I think, gives us not only an example to follow but the endurance that we need that it's ultimately about Christ, staying focused on Christ looking to Christ, casting our burden on Christ, leaning into Christ. And as we do that, we can cheerfully fight on with full confidence that someday we will be more than a conqueror. If you ever get serious about this subject of mortification, you're gonna have to get into John Owen's classic book called Sin and Temptation. I mean, he's the man. That is the classic. That is the book. If you're serious about, hey, I want to learn more about this this concept of mortification, then I would encourage you to pick up a copy of Sin and Temptation by John Owen and and don't expect it to be an easy read. It's a challenging read, but it's just rich. But it's really a massive exposition of Romans 8.13, which the Puritans were Uh, known for. They would just uh, explain it over and over again and apply it in all sorts of different ways. And he was just explaining this. But listen to one quote from Sin and Temptation by John Owen. He said this, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. He says this, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be, or it will be killing you. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Now, what you saying, "Well, time out, die and conquer, that's uh, an oxymoron. Uh, if I conquer, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna win, right? I don't, I'm not gonna die explain that Owen says if we kill sin we're going to die and i think this is the irony of mortification is that sin will eventually kill us the wages of sin is what death that's why we're all sitting here dying right now but ultimately we'll be victorious over it I assume being good Texans, as you are, you know that earlier this month we celebrated Alamo Day, right? March 6th, if you didn't know that, brush up on your um, Texas history there a little bit. I had Gordon remind me. Just talk to Gordon, he'll remind you. He'll get you on his email list and tell you when it's coming around. But we all know, we all been to the Alamo, I'm sure, in San Antonio, and it really is a, an American symbol, not just for Texans, but for Americans of, of courage and sacrifice, and, and listen to this, I just think this is a, 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 a perfect analogy of what we're talking about when it comes to mortification. You know the story, right? There was a small force of what, 180 Texans captured this strategic fort, and an army of 6,000 Mexicans under the leadership of Santa Ana, they surrounded the fort, they demanded them to surrender. And the Texans sent for reinforcements. They never came. They realized that they were either gonna have to surrender or die. And so as we all know, Travis, right, walks to the middle of the courtyard, takes out a sword, draws a line in the dirt. He looks at his fellow soldiers, said, anyone who wants to surrender, take your chances with the Mexicans, you're free to go. But anyone who's determined to remain in this fort and to defend it to your death, step over the line. I remember watching that movie the first time, the IMAX in San Antonio. I was like, I came out of there, like, where do I sign up? I want to be a Texan, right? Where do I go? (laughs) You got me. All the men who crossed that line knew that they were going to die. They knew they were going to die, but they determined to die fighting and to kill as many enemy soldiers as they could before they died. That was their goal. And we know they ultimately became heroes. Their courage and their sacrifice motivated their fellow Texans to ultimately defeat the, the Mexican army later on. Remember the Alamo? Listen, that's the way it is with us. We know that we will eventually die. Sin is gonna kill all of us unless Jesus comes back first, right? But we need to commit ourselves to die fighting and to kill as many sins as, as we can before we die. And ultimately, if we do that, we will die a conqueror. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just all these practical principles that you've given us in your word to implement our justification, the fact that we've been regenerated, we've been empowered to no longer sin. And and yet there's some work for us to do in the sanctification process. And I pray we'd always keep these things in proper balance, Lord, and not confuse them and not blur them. And, but Lord, we just uh, thank you for giving us your spirit who makes all this possible and giving us the example of Jesus to look at and to follow and to lean on and depend on in this whole process. And so Lord, I pray that we'd come alongside one another as a church and, and, and really get serious and intentional and deliberate about overcoming those things in our lives that we know aren't pleasing to you and are not a good witness to the lost world around us and that we would just uh, become humble and transparent and, and, uh, and, and, and really be our brother's keeper, if you will, and care for one another's souls. And Lord, with this uh, concerted effort, this corporate uh, commitment, Lord, that we will make much more progress than if we were just out there trying to do it all by ourselves. And so thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for this church and I pray you'd continue to help us to be uh, who you want us to be for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.